You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. Stephen Larson, our guest this portion of our program, says that every one of us is a fundamentalist in one way or another. Only I'd like to add some are more fundamentalist than others. <laughs> there's extreme fundamentalism, there's moderate, there's soft fundamentalism. Anyways, he points out and is the wonderful Joseph Campbell with whom he studied for many years, teaches us we are all raised with a certain set of beliefs, mythologies, and feelings that are associated with these stories and symbol systems. But sometimes, and I can speak from my own experience in life, we can become very rigid either out of fear, narrow-mindedness, or just we believe, for whatever reasons, what we believe is the way. But no matter what each of us believe, the outcome of all and any fundamentalism is separation, hatred, and sometimes violence. So we're going to look this hour at what happens when we get fixed in our minds and then stone in our heart, and how even the best belief can turn into something that is destructive. Thank you so much, Stephen, for joining us. This is, uh, I'm a little hoarse. I've had a cold, but I, I hope you'll bear with me. Well, certainly we will make it through. And, and you and I have joined each other in the past on Future Talk. We spoke about a book you wrote on angels and some other things. And I know that you're a professor emeritus of, of psychology at SUNY Ulster, and you got your doctorate from the Union Graduate School and your bachelor's and master's from Columbia University. And you've studied with Dr. Stanislav Groff. And um, Joseph Campbell. So I think many in our audience, because of the wonderful PBS series on Joseph Campbell's work in mythologies, are better informed than 10 years ago. I believe that's true. So let's begin there. How do mythologies um, affect whether or not we are fundamentalistic or we are open-minded? Well, I think mythologies, we have a kind of an organ for reception uh, of mythologies and stories in our brains. It's just the way that we're, that we're programmed, uh, the narrat- narratizing consciousness. It understands stories, and it even understands the whole notion of the sacred as an order that is uh, eternal and far more important than any ordinary social or political uh, considerations that human beings have. And so everybody has this ability to respond to the sacred. You know it when you walk into a, a cathedral, you speak in hushed tones, and you, you doff your hat, and you may touch your lips with holy water so that you don't say anything uh, ill-considered in those spaces. So we, we all know this basically kind of instinctually. And the issue is, can that uh, sacred consciousness be manipulated by, uh, by sort of mass conversion psychology and... Uh, and mass religion the way we find it in some places in the world today. And you, you, you grew up, as I recall, as a son of a... You, didn't you grow up in a, in, a, in a religious household, Presbyterian? Yes, my father was a minister first in the Presbyterian church, and then he became a, a Swedenborgian, right. which, was, which was wonderful because the Swedenborgians tried to see um, the world more transparently while having very conventional religious... Uh, churches and parishes and mm-hmm. services and all that kind of thing. And and how would you say from your own life experience, because in a certain sense all religions are fundamentalist, I don't, it doesn't matter which one, whether it's Buddhist or Shinto or Christian or Jewish. It can be. Yes, it can be. It's not necessary. It doesn't have to be. And, and maybe we should start there. What makes it 
inflexible versus inclusive? It's when you get a kind of a death grip on the stories you've been told and you don't allow them to be metamorphic and playful and the very stuff of creativity, the, the sort of divine, stu- the divine imagination that works through us, these stories can give wonderful uh, meaning and uh, inspiration to our lives, or they can, uh, they can stifle us and drag us down if they're held in the wrong way. And uh, what I bring out in, in my book, The Fundamentalist Mind, is just how susceptible the human brain is to, uh, to mythic thinking and then how easily it gets just solidified into... Uh, what I call hardening of the categories. Well, so then, then I mean, you spoke a little earlier about there being a biology to our minds, and we also know there's a spirituality to them, and some are even saying God is in the brain. And um, I don't, I mean, that may be partially true, but I also think we have souls that are in our bodies temporarily that are where our spiritual um, connectedness comes, connectedness come from. But what about your own work and your investigation makes you feel that there's parts of the brain that are susceptible and open to narrative as interpretive and loving and flexible and other parts of the mind that categorize and lock down? Well, it's the, the decisive issue here is the whole flexibility of the brain itself. Um, we know that there are bilateral asymmetries in the brain, and you can have the left hemisphere cut off from the right hemisphere. They're only joined by a, a bundle of a, a commissure called the corpus callosum, a few million neurons, where there are billions on either side. So it's a very slender bridge between the two of them. And we used to think uh, back in the 60s and 70s, if you remember, though, so that you know, uh, right hemisphere is holistic and natural and right. good and feminine, and the Left hemisphere is an accountant and an IBMer and a bean counter. And right, that. rational, mechanistic, and that was the mythology. Right, uh-huh. <laughs> that, that arose out of what William James identified as a kind of a uh, uh, sort of three R's dominated culture, reading, writing, arithmetic, and the arts and sculpture and play and physical culture can go hang. And America was that way for a long time, and then... Uh, you know, Dewey and progressive education came along and said, but wait a minute, what about all these things? What about these multiple intelligences, these different kinds of intelligences? And it is true to have, you know, mental flexibility and multiple intelligences. You need both hemispheres operating together in a beautiful kind of stereo dance so that you can listen to people's words and read the expressions on their faces and then another part of your brain is calculating what the hell do they mean by that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and, and one of the things, though, that I think is, is really quite fascinating is the effects of trauma, whether oh, personal yes. or collective. And, and share with us your own insights about how trauma actually can instigate this, this lockdown. And it's an interesting way I've come to think about it, that it's a lockdown of your own mind. Well, you've been reading the book pretty uh, carefully then. Uh, I, I started having a, a kind of a terrifying thought as I was uh, researching the chapters on, uh, on head injury and fundamentalism. I went, wait a minute, in the Middle Ages, do you think there could have been fundamentalists uh, whose uh, outlook, whose very, very rigid outlooks on the world were due to head injuries? Mm-hmm. You know, the entire uh, culture of the time consisted of banging each other over the head with hard objects. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. And so all of the uh, the kings and the courtiers and the, everybody was head injured, and they had really, really rigid ideas. We now know from uh, neurotherapy that um, 
people who have been brain injured get very concrete, very literalistic in their thinking. And the brain gets driven by a little organ called the amygdala that gives us things like black or white thinking. You're either for us or against us. You're our friend or you're our foe, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and yet sometimes, you know, we to find that place that we share in common and to be able to grow that is generally not the first impulse. The first impulse is the fear of flight, you know, to fight or flight. And, and it seems that so much of that fuels political movements. You yeah, know, there's a kind of a xenophobia uh, that's just instinctive to human being. I think it starts back in, uh, you know, primate-like uh, kind of groups where just anybody who is different and who had a different colored skin and a different kind of appearance was regarded as dangerous. And, you know, um, human beings like primates and other mammals tend to bond with their in-group and reject those who are different, and that includes, of course, belief systems. Right, and now we have, as you know, as Huntington would say, the Clash of Samuel, I think that was his name, the Clash of Civilizations. (laughs) Drawing these names out of my past sometimes is not as easy as it used to be. And (laughs) and you might say we're having a a clash of fundamental perspectives. Um, I I think so. I think that Joseph Campbell would say that the the tectonic plates, so to speak, that are moving underneath us are larger than at any time in recorded history. That is to say, now it's not just between Christianity and Islam, although that's a big one. It's not just between the Catholics and the Protestants. It's between a deeper kind of uh, split. Is the world alive? Is it intelligible? Or is it a dead, soulless machine? Mm-hmm. And... Um, if we if we start thinking about it that way, then a lot of the um, you know the histrionics of the conflict become more uh, understandable. People don't want that um, uh, wheeling accidental uh, collision um, physical um, statistical universe that uh, is is around since Descartes' time, and uh, it scares a lot of people. And they want a meaningful and sold universe. And the question is, how do they want that? And what is their reflex in response to uh, the pervasive uh, scientific materialism? Well, and, and as you write in The Fundamentalist Mind, how polarized thinking imperils us all is that, you know, we can have a set system of teachings and make use of them, but to become inflexible to adaptation or creative interpretation is and when it's imposed and you're not allowed to have it. You know, talk to us a bit about what brainwashing really is and what happens. Well, um, as Joseph Campbell said, the central nervous system of the human brain and the body and the receptive sites are the hardware, so to speak, and the culture is the software, and that includes mythologies. And so these tender, tender central nervous systems of ours are uh, imprinted with a a system of emotionally loaded images and narratives and sentiments that are, once you've been imprinted like that in a young age, it's pretty darn hard to get it out, even with years of psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, uh, and, And we've seen that from the terrorist training camps worldwide, that children raised to believe that it's an honor to give up their life, you know, at the expense of others, they won't believe any other way. Well, yeah, and, and, and many of those kids are 
head injured and culturally deprived and nutritionally deprived and and, they and brutalized, exist. I add, and brutalized. Yeah, and they exist under the desert sun, and it's all, it all works against. Uh, so naturally, of course, they <laughs> they don't like people who, uh, who 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 march around thinking they're better than other people. <laughs> well, what happens inside? I mean, because you've done some interesting work of helping people sort of relax certain portions of their brain so that they become more useful. I mean, you've done some interesting other work in your own private practice. Maybe we can talk about. Because it it seems from what your book suggests is that when we become inflexible, we are allowing the the story to become more important than our relationship to it. I mean, I'm not quite sure how do we go about finding ourselves to be somewhat fundamentalist, like a Westerner who thinks that America can do no wrong. That is that is complete crazy mind control. Well, I think we started from that idea that uh, America was the fair-haired boy of the world after World War II. We we saved the world from uh, from Hitler and uh, and Mussolini and and Japan, who were who were clearly fascists. And then we we got the idea that we were the good guys. And that myth, unfortunately, unconsciously held, then leads to a kind of a, a hubris and in international uh, right arrogance, uh, arrogance and and hubris. And that you know, pride goeth before a fall, and um, I think, in a sense, the, um, you might say, the American zeitgeist, the, uh, our modern cultural modal personality really was that we were like a kind of a hero figure that could do no wrong. Right. And now we're suffering the kind of dark side of the hero journey, which is that you always have to go through a, a kind of a death and, and rebirth. So you're, the first question you asked, though, was about my, my clinical work, and I do do work with post-traumatic stress disorder, and I've, I've worked with, you know, Vietnam and first Gulf War vets and now Iraq War vets, and, and also people who were traumatized by the World Transit Trade Center, as well as people with just your average garden variety of TBI or traumatic brain injury. Right. <laughs> when you come home from a war, you may have all, all of the above. You may have, you know, seen horrible things and done horrible things and and been near an explosion and gotten hit over the head and all kinds of things. And uh, and your gravity is pretty shaken up. The very equipment with which you're, you know, trying to process the world, you drop your computer a few too many times or you run it on the wrong juice, and uh, by God, it's not going to work very well for you. But we haven't all fallen on our heads, and we haven't all had, you know, poor childbirth and had our heads squished by thongs or whatever those are when they pull you out um so 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 what is it though then about you said that we have an aptitude for the narrative and then when we hear these narratives whether it's a religious narrative or a political narrative or even a, a personal one within your family you know the family stories that get told about aunt jane and uncle howard and you know their strange behavior and even if it's not true if it's told long enough we believe it well anything that is repeated is in, becomes ingrained in the nervous system and so i have a whole chapter on authority ritual and dissociation in which I say, you know, the human brain is very, very susceptible to authority hierarchies. It's very, very susceptible to uh, imitation of those up higher in the hierarchies. Very susceptible to ritual. And uh, by God, when, as Joseph Campbell used to say, when you stand there in, uh, you know, uh, St. Paul's Cathedral and the uh, the Pope is giving the Mass and uh, the organ is playing solemnly, I mean, these things have a powerful, powerful impact on the psyche. And uh, and our belief systems and uh, 
you, you never outgrow those, and you can't be, uh, they can't be taken away. They're there in an important and permanent uh, kind of way. But I think the other thing that I say is in the chapter subsequent to that is that um, unscrupulous people with um, kind of revival tent conversion tactics mm-hmm. scare people into thinking the end of the world is coming. And mm-hmm. so they, they evoke the, <laughs> the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal is that what happens when you're afraid of the apocalypse? I mean, is apocalyptic thinking, does it actually stimulate a part of the brain to respond that other kinds of thinking doesn't? That's how it works. Uh, that's why <laughs> Joseph Campbell said, you know, this, this uh, second coming of Christ has been predicted since the second century after his, his death. It keeps getting predicted. The end of the world is coming. It's like a cliche. There are people on street corners saying the end of the world is coming. They were doing that in the year 1000. They were doing that in the year 1500. But in many sacred societies, they don't speak of it as the end of the world, like the end of the earth and everything's going to die as much as the end of a particular way of viewing the world and a particular way of being in the world is dying and it and it will be a new age. I well, mean, you know, there are processions and that sort of thing in terms of zodiacal changes. Well, there are two kinds of uh, ways of conceiving of time as it unfolds for us all. There is the older version, which is there in pre-literate and paleolithic societies, which is called the eternal return. Mm-hmm. You know, what goes around comes around. And right. It keeps going round and round. You don't get so worked up. You don't get so hysterical about right. things as you do in the linear mm-hmm. or uh, eschatological time scheme in which, therefore, sacred history becomes linear history. Right. And everything that you do either favors God or the devil and you're all working towards that great big apocalypse at the end of time. And this has been used by unscrupulous people to engineer, you know, adrenaline-based conversions. And it is true that very many people are, uh, you know, morally not as evolved as they could be, let's put it politely Mm -hmm. that way, and they need a conversion, and somebody comes along and says, either convert, either throw your soul in the mercy of the Lord or you know, Jesus Christ or Allah or whatever it is, or, you know, be damned, and you know your own past tendencies have uh, gotten you in trouble before, so you, you engage in this conversion. But uh, Joseph Campbell called the, the second coming the great non-event. It's been predicted so many times throughout history that everybody goes, oh my God. And yet somehow the people who believe that it's going to happen have very, very interesting mental ways of justifying, oh, well, it happened in the spiritual world, not in the natural world, or Oh, it's still going to happen, but the date has been postponed. We but just wouldn't, gotta... you, wouldn't you say, though, that it's actually a very, it's a very hopeful story? I mean, it, it suggests not that we don't have responsibility, though some people may behave that way. Oh, I don't have to change my behavior because Mashiach, the Messiah, or somebody else, the Savior, the Buddha, you well, know, somebody will come. On the other hand, it says that, that there's the possibility of restoration. Well, it's a redemption motif, yeah. So just because people have a mindset that may differ, a Christian living next to their Muslim neighbor, living next to their Jewish neighbor, they all three may share some beliefs that are similar, many that are dissimilar, doesn't mean that it can't be for good to have these beliefs, because religion gets a really bad rap all the time now. I mean, you you can barely talk about religion publicly without it getting some sort of you know, backhanded um, critique from somebody saying, oh, well, what's wrong with you if you believe in God? Uh-huh. You know, this is true, and there, there's a whole literature that is emerging of people who are really um, frightened of what the God concept can do because it appeals to that part in the human 
brain and the human psychology that considers God's revelations as the highest every other kind of information you can get. And so they, they regard the, uh, these as the highest uh, form of information and everything else is subordinate to it. I see. So there's fear of what's not seen or perhaps what's known. or And, and what about you? You speak in your book, The Fundamentalist Mind, and, and I do want, before our time is up together, we all have a, to take a little break in a bit, but um, I wanted to go through how do you know if you're a fundamentalist test, your five-minute test, you know, in the short yes. form. But you said that, you know, many people are hoping for moving towards a natural spirituality that is, is kind of like all sacred lineages coming together. I, th- I think that is uh, the only hopeful future for humankind. There have been many, many parliaments of world religions in which uh, ecumenical gatherings uh, mm-hmm. come together, and those people do learn to talk to each other and, and share that they have a, a common ground if they can get over their, their god-awful, if you will, pardon the language, provincialism, and uh, <laughs> their uh, unconscious assumptions of cultural superiority. Mm-hmm. Well, look, we're going to take our little break, and we'll come back. We'll talk some more about that, because there there are signs, I think, of this kind of integration without people necessarily having to lose their autonomy. But when we come back, Stephen Larson joins us. Get your pencils ready to find out if you're a fundamentalist. Hello, this is Jeffrey Mishlove speaking. I'm the Dean of Transformational Psychology at the University of Philosophical Research. I think you might enjoy visiting our website, www.uprs.edu. If you're interested in a master's degree in transformational psychology or consciousness studies, and you're listening right now to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, I have to say, Dr. Zoe is an incredible resource. She has been doing these interviews now for three decades, and that makes her a great maven, a great sage, a font of wisdom, and a fabulous interviewer. Thank you. Let's get right back to our guest. But I really encourage you to go to StoneMountainCenter.com and learn about some really interesting work that uh, Stephen Larson and his team does. So I want to come back to the, the these bigger issues of, because if all of us have fundamentalism in a sense, whether it's cultural or religious or political or family, how do we know if that is... Um, affecting our decision-making in a way that could be destructive? Well, you know, I'm going to go back to the question you gave me right before we uh, made the break, because I'd love to step off from that into the question you just asked. Okay. Okay. So the, the one I wanted to start with is religion's own examination of conscience. Okay. And my idea is that I want religion to be able to do an examination of conscience the way people within those religions have always been encouraged to do. And and the same way that anthropologists analyze the religions of the societies they study, why can't we look at the religions of our own society this way? Why do we study sociology, psychology, and anthropology if we can't look at our own belief systems the same way anthropologists have these crystal clear uh, X-ray vision uh, lenses, uh, social lenses, if you will, that 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 look at the, at the way that societies are put together. Why aren't we? Are these things mere curiosities, or do we examine our own society? So I, I looked at my. Can you give us an example um, of well, what yeah, you mean? Uh, as if you were a social scientist, review the religion in which you were brought up, 
Did the religion, A, make absolute truth claims? B, make supernatural assertions that are impossible to verify outside of Scripture? C, emphasize supernatural rewards or punishments, heaven or hell? And D, emphasize a literal devil and point to real people or institutions as opposed to represent him? E, discount the discoveries of science or evolution? F, say or imply that women should be subservient? And in what ways was the religion presented to you? Do you dare question it, or are you punished if you dare question it? These are some basic things you could start to ask yourself. You asked me to uh, take a uh, look right. at my uh, five-minute fundamentalist um, theory. And <clears throat> I think that we have to learn to do these things. After all, the social sciences are not mere curiosities. I taught psychology for 28 years, and... Uh, my favorite people to teach were the adult returning students who had the deep questions to ask and made me think about these things much, much more deeply uh, myself. We're in, in the religion of your upbringing and in your daily conversations. Are other religions presented as bad or blasphemous? Do you think, like Franklin Graham, for example, that Islam is equivalent to the devil? If you think that, and then the Ayatollahs on the other side think that Christianity is equal to the devil, you have a, a recipe for a mythological recipe for disaster. There's just no middle ground. And and so what we see though is that these belief systems can be militarized, and by that I mean they can they can manifest in the form of armament. <laughs> Onward, Christian soldiers. Right. It's exactly, and then you get this notion of holy war, or not not self defense, not even national defense, but something other. Well, it's called up. It's called upping the ante, or our truth trumps all other truths. And, and so for the people in the listening audience, let's say there's somebody in our audience who's a devout Catholic, loves the Blessed Mother. There's somebody else in our audience who observes the Sabbath and believes every word in Torah is true. And, and there's an, a Muslim who, you know, believes that everything in the Quran is the holy word of Muhammad. I mean, what, what are you saying to, let's say, all three of these observant types of people about their beliefs, that they can have them, but that one has to live with them in a different way? Or that the beliefs themselves are unkind to the spirit. If the beliefs themselves are not held transparently, that is, so that you can see through them to the wisdom they point beyond, as Joseph Campbell said, any belief that is held concretely is an idol, and its belief is, is basically idolatry. So if you can't look past the, the, the death grip you have on that image, that it must be sacred at all costs, and, li and you've also projected it literally into history so that, uh, you know, this is our holy city. No, it's our holy city. No, it's our holy city. <laughs> what if it's everybody's holy city? Well, yeah, that, and, and yet that doesn't happen either on, you know, social, political, economic, or religious levels. It's a kind of a horrible thing to think of people uh, being shot at and taking, you know, refuge mm -hmm. in the temple of the nativity there in Jerusalem or in Bethlehem or... Uh, whatever, so that the most horrible things are enacted on holy soil. It seems also in the struggle now that has been unleashed by our un unfortunate uh, intervention in uh, in Iraq between the Sunnis and the Shiites, yeah. where they decide to blow up the the central sacred place of the religion and thus destroy its heart. But what it unleashes is a kind of a nuclear wasteland of rage that just erupts out of those 
those things, and then they do an equally more horrible thing to the, uh, in a sense, of, if you will, to the mythological core of mm-hmm. the other tradition. Mm-hmm. And and so if we look around the world and we see this, or you see the recklessness in the cities where the political, you know, mythology is that drugs are bad and therefore anybody who does them should be put in prison. That's that's an autocratic kind of fundamentalism. So we see fundamentalism both religious, political, social, economic. How, how can the individual listener who hears this discussion say, well, you know, I, I have these things and I believe in the, in the Bible, but it doesn't mean that I can't also refine my nature. I mean, to me, the whole thing comes down to what kind of person are you in your living day to day? And how do you treat other people? Uh, the Bible was written by very sincere people who believed in what they we're saying, and yet who didn't have the knowledge that we now have available to ourselves, and so they gave a sincere representation of God as, as they could. And uh, But see, in the Jewish tradition, in orthodoxy, it's taught that men did not write the, the Torah, the five books of Moses. This was actually the record of God's telling to Moses, and Moses put it down in order. Well, they all say that. <laughs> Every sacred scripture in the world says that. You know, it says that uh, it's a, Allah... It was an oral narrative initially. Yeah, that, that Muhammad didn't make up the uh, right. Quran. He, he, he took down dictation. But what if it's true? I mean, what if, what if all of these, you know, teachers were just that? They were great initiates who the Creator spoke to in order to help the people have some some boundaries in their lives so that they could refine themselves to become fully endowed godlike beings. That's why I don't join Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins in saying that all religion is, is hogwash. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that religion instructs the human spirit down through the ages, and of course you have to have narratives and sacred stories and, and boundaries for your, uh, for your culture and for your values. Uh, religions instruct people in values, and they're, they're, Absolutely. they're wonderful, and they are perennial institutions. But... You know, you said, what if they're true? Well, they can't all be literally true, <laughs> because the stories are conflicting, you know. But what they if... can all be true, and that the culture experiences it all through a different lens. I, th- I think the problem for me is when one says, my story is the only story. It's all right for me to believe that these are the words of God to Moses, and I feel very comfortable with it. I can speak to somebody else very close to me, and they'll say, you've got to be out of your mind. Uh-huh. But it yep. doesn't affect my love for them. Maybe it affects their love for me. And isn't that ultimately what we're talking about, is how can a society exhibit love that these sacred traditions presumably are, are, um, are speaking to, or should be? My, my first book was, uh, was a, a thing called The Shaman's Doorway, published mm-hmm. back in 1976. And I pointed out that shamans are not always welcome because they're likely to suddenly begin channeling a spirit or God from the other world and come up with some absolutely outrageous demand that nobody counted on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> so, that's true. So, so the kings or the emperors are much happier to have priests around, and the priests mostly chant and celebrate the same thing over and over again, and so they're the custodians of, of the sacred, if you will, in an orderly society. They don't make outrageous demands. Yeah, it's predictable. Yeah, and if they stay under the, the uh, knuckle of the, of the king, why, everything is just hunky-dory. The sacred supports the secular, and the, mm-hmm. and the secular supports the sacred. But in these traditions, you know, it, it does, you know um, I guess it was Pat Robertson who says he has annual 
uh, conversations with God on January 1st when God kind of lays out everything. Uh, <laughs> Maybe uh, the, so. Coming, Wouldn't that be nice? Hey, God, I'm coming around January coming, yeah. 13th oh, yeah, on my no, birthday. And, <laughs> and nobody but Pat, because he's such a popular and wonderful guy, gets mm-hmm. uh, the ear of the, uh, of the Almighty in that way. The magazine Church and State uh, did an analysis of his prophecies because they are literally, you know, uh, Armageddon is going to come in this year mm-hmm. and the Soviet Union is going to invade the Middle East. He comes out and he says, well, actual prophecies. Right. They had about 30 different prophecies that all were just absolute failures. And uh, Well, for the, for the person, though, listening, Stephen, because we're almost out of time, we just have about five minutes left, what's, what's the most important thing to do? I mean, let's say somebody that says, well, look, you know, I grew up believing that if I drink milk and it's from a goat, it's good, and if I drink milk from a cow, it's bad. I mean, all of us have so many beliefs and so many narratives running in our head all the time when we make choices. How do we know that we're, that we're making a choice from flexibility, real choice, versus lack of choice based on the script that we've been fed? That's a hell of a good question, though. And that, that leads back to the five-minute fundamentalist idea that we learn what Carl Jung called the self-liberating power of the introverted mind. Observe yourself and notice how many times you change your mind in 24 hours, how many strange things you believe and then reject them because somebody else tells you something different or because you learn facts that were different. Or you sit on a a street corner waiting for a friend to visit you, and you created all these scenarios in your mind, and then the person shows up and says, oh, my God, I was almost killed in an accident. And Mm -hmm. you change your mind about the whole thing that happened. Now, uh, we we constantly are making up models or ideas about the world, and we have to learn to introspect through something like meditation or solitude or other exercises of self-observation and realize how fallible our minds are. And that's why these guys who think they have it all sewed up have never looked at the reality of human fallibility. We have to be able to make mistakes in order to proceed through life in a creative fashion. We are entitled to make mistakes. Reality is not mistakes. It's not the, is, 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 is our right to make mistakes not the inspiration of the devil? And that's mm-hmm. what fundamentalists do. They say, oh, you know, Jimmy Swaggart said, no, you know, when I was caught in that hotel room with that prostitute, it was the devil that made me do it, not <laughs> not my own uh, psychology that I haven't worked through uh, satisfactorily all the way. You know. And and so the important thing is is not for one to close one's mind to different points of view or belief systems. It's how what we do with that information. Minds work best like parachutes when they're open. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, exactly. And, and do you think that there is now a universal narrative that people are beginning to hear? Because you, you spoke to it, and we had the translator um, of Pierre Robbie's book, As in the Heart, So in the Earth, and he also speaks of a more universal ability to hear, to hear life speak and, and to, to fall in love with life. It's the only way that we're going to survive, though. Well, it seems to be the consensus. I have to say, of the hundreds of thousands of people we talk to and meet in the course of a lifetime, um, I'd say the new paradigm, that that would be the summation of all the many guests on 21st Century Radio, that we are in a, in a time phase of Earth experience where it's all of us or none of us. What we have to do to combat this monolithic edifice, it seems, of fundamentalism, whether it's Christian or Judaic or Islamic, is to get all the funny whimsical, wonderful people that believe in Christian science and astrology and they're Unitarian Universalists and they're 
are born again pagans, and there's a great variety out there, and the, and the one and they and they have very um, vital and loving relationships with their belief system, but they don't have a common voice and a way to get together. And I think these next elections that are coming up are going to kind of, in a sense, polarize the country against the monolithic thinkers versus the diverse uh, cultural mm-hmm. types. I think you know, that people are ready for something that speaks more to unity. Look, I have to say goodbye. Let me encourage my audience to get your book, The Fundamentalist Mind, How Polarized Thinking Imperils Us All by Stephen Larson. You can also go online um, to www.stonemountaincenter.com. And here we are at the end of the hour. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner. Our engineer is Noah Dankner. I'm Dr. Zohar Hieronymus, and we hope you enjoyed the show.